Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. We have an opportunity to move away from the bifurcation. Is it adult education, HRD? I think we are in pursuit of similar values, which is to create the most opportunity or potential for human flourishing. Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and here in our third season, we're exploring the relationship between HRD and other topics and disciplines with the help of leading authors, researchers, and scholars. Today, our focus is the relationship between HRD and adult education. And our guest scholars are Stephen Brookfield of Antioch University, Robin Grenier of the University of Connecticut, and Aliki Nicolaides of the University of Georgia, all of whom join me for conversations recorded during June and July of 2022. Our episode today is structured into two halves. In the first 30 minutes, we look at what we mean by the term adult education and its relationship to work and the workplace. And then in the second 30 minutes, we explore the relationship between adult education and HRD. You can find out all about the questions explored in the episode, the three guest scholars, and also the episode sponsors by visiting allbypodcast.com forward slash adult education. Talking of sponsors, the podcast is only made possible thanks to the wonderful support of our sponsors, who cover all of the costs associated with the series, and so enable us to release them free of charge to listeners like you. I encourage you to show your thanks by checking them out and letting them know just how much their sponsorship means to you. Today's episode is sponsored by the Human Resource Development Programme at the University of Minnesota, and by the Academy of Human Resource Development Board. The first half of the episode is sponsored by the Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy and Development at the University of Minnesota. They offer undergraduate in HRD, MA, MED and PhD degree programs and certificate programs in HRD and adult education, with award-winning faculty who develop and apply cutting-edge knowledge. HRD at the University of Minnesota pursues a leading program that transforms not only the field of HRD, but also our communities and the world by developing ideas, people and organizations. You can find out more information about their program by visiting cehd.umn.edu slash olpd. Right, let's dive into the episode. Welcome to our episode on HRD and adult education. Let's start by meeting today's three guest scholars. And first, I'd like to welcome Stephen Brookfield, Distinguished Scholar, Antioch University, Adjunct Professor at Teachers College, Columbia, and Emeritus Professor at the University of St. Thomas. Stephen has written, co-written, or edited 20 books on adult learning, teaching, critical thinking, discussion methods, critical theory, leadership, and teaching race, six of which have won the Cyril O'Hall World Award for Literature in Adult Education. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Darren. Nice to be here. My second guest for the episode is Robin Grenier, Professor of Adult Learning in the NEAG School of Education at the University of Connecticut. Robin received her PhD in Adult Education and Certificate in Qualitative Inquiry from the University of Georgia. Her research focuses on informal and experiential learning, expertise redevelopment, and learning in cultural institutions. 
Robin is also a qualitative methodologist and co-edited the second edition of Qualitative Research in Practice, Examples for Discussion and Analysis. Welcome, Robin. Thanks. Glad to be here. My third guest for the episode is Aliki Nikolaides, Associate Professor of Adult Learning, Leadership and Adult Development at the University of Georgia in the Program of Learning, Leadership and Organization Development. Through the past decade of research and teaching, Aliki has developed a philosophy of adult learning, generative knowing, which highlights and explores how adults might learn their way through the complexity and ambiguity that is so prevalent in this period of liquid modernity. Aliki is a founding steward and current director of the International Transformative Learning Association. Welcome, Aliki. Thank you, Darren. Lovely to be here. Okay, well, I'd like to start off our conversation by exploring definitions, and in particular to explore the term adult education, so that listeners are clear on that, ready for when we dig deeper into the relationship between adult education and HRD. So what do we mean by adult education? The shorthand answer is that it's the intentional facilitation of learning in adults, But that is such a broad response that probably doesn't get us very far. So I want to unpack the term a little bit more in a moment. But I would like to say that I think one of the reasons I was attracted to the field was because of its fluidity. It encompassed a range of different learning settings. So, for example, in the last few months, some of the things that I've been working with has been community advocates learning how to present proposals to local government. I've worked with the United States Air Force Academy on issues around race and leadership. I've worked recently with someone who helped seniors prepare tax returns. Of course, I've worked a lot in institutions of education But if we think about that phrase, adult education, I'd like to break it down in terms of focusing on each of those two words. So let's take adult, first of all. In adult education, we're dealing with adult learners, and that means something, because uh, broadly speaking, adults have uh, a greater breadth and depth of experience. They tend to have, again, a generalization a greater openness to ambiguity, thinking dialectically, to realizing that their own experience is something to be considered and to be important. So when I was at a session with Miles Horton, who founded the Highlander Folk School, co-founded it, he gave us his definition of adult education, uh, helping people learn what they do. In other words, in his case, making activists realize the vast reservoir experience that they could bring and share with other activists. But the trouble with experience is that it's not, from my point of view, an unallied positive thing. Your experience can be interpreted in such a way as to root hatred and bigotry. And so those insights become sedimented and they're very, very hard to challenge and shift people away from. And then to turn to the other half of that uh, that term, adult education, and look at the word education. Uh, Education to me has connotations of planfulness and intentionality. And although a lot of education happens outside of a formal program, there is still an intentional desire on the part of those involved to be learning something, to be acquiring some new skills, developing new dispositions, uh, considering new knowledge and information that's important for them. And I'm someone who tends not to make such a distinction between education and training. I do think training can be subsumed under education, and my colleagues may well disagree with me on this, but training in a training setting, you usually have a fairly closely specified set of skills that you're trying to induct or initiate people into. And to me, that is part of the general category of education. 
I'm, I'm sometimes asked, well, what is an adult educational methodology? Is it inherently discussion-based? Is it dialogic, problem-posing, and so on? And I always say that there is um, nothing that's inherently adult in the methodology. It's all in the tone that you create, the way that you interact with learners, the relationships you build with them. So in some situations, I think it's fine to act as an authority with something important to share, because if that's what will help learners the most at that point, then it seems to me that's what you should be doing. Uh, my own inclination is to work through discussion, but I'm very happy to say, no, let's work in a way that makes sense for the people I'm dealing with. You know, an adult approach is one where you're researching who you're dealing with, uh, where you're trying to demonstrate a basic respect for their identity and their experience, not make too many assumptions about them, and where you're being responsive to what you discover, where you're constantly seeing it as a major part of your professional responsibility to find out what's happening to people and how you can better support whatever learning is going on. Adult education is exemplified for me, most perfectly according to my preferences. When people gather together to analyze experience, when the roles in that group shift, so there is not always a clearly designated teacher and clearly designated learners, those roles alternate uh, in one particular session, let alone over a program's life. And when power is exercised ethically and responsibility, because power is always in the room, sometimes the power is with the positional leader, sometimes it's with a particular uh, person who's defined as a learner or a group of learners. The question is not how do we get rid of power, but how do we make sure that power is used ethically and responsibly, and for the collective good, which are all difficult questions for any group to answer. So that's my opening summary of, of reflections on the term adult education. I appreciated the, uh, the definition. And in some ways, I think I'm reassured that my own definition, I always struggled with that sort of complexity and, and lack of specificity. You know, in casual conversation, someone says, well, what do you do? And, you know, I'm, I'm an adult educator. And what does that mean? And um, I do find myself trying to connect it to something that makes sense to them. So training in the workplace is often sort of that go to. Otherwise, they may go straight to something like uh, adult basic education. I think it's it's a it's exciting to see that it's extending its definition. You know, like um, I know I've been teaching more about social movements as adult education um, in my own classes. And so thinking about that sort of community of learning um, that, that doesn't just lead to individual benefit like a training course does, but thinking about how it benefits um, the community or the society or the organization as a whole. So. So I'll just put that out there to start with. First of all, I think that it is a fluid thing, like that adult education is something that we can't actually nail or put a complete label on, I think is a benefit, to be honest. For me, adult education is about creating the space where adults, and I think it's really important to name that, that they are adults in the sense that they have a life experience, that they're engaged in life and work and play and the ongoing potential inquiry that adults do uh, around, you know, what does it mean to participate in, in society? Uh, and, and there's a shadow side of that, which I think, Stephen, you, you're, you're naming, such as power and, and experiences that really solidify hatred and anger and racism and bigotry, et cetera. The shadow side of adult education is not really, um, not really schooled well, in my view. We don't really bring it into our classroom enough, even though I think, Stephen, you do, and certainly Robin, with your social movement work, you do. But I think we could do more. But I do think that when adults are given the opportunity to explore their experience and how to make meaning of that experience in places that are safe 
and to translate that experience in the context of a larger societal context, whether it's an organization or a home or a, a movement or a community, that when adult education is done in a way that really, uh, you know, really emphasizes the dignity of our human and more than human being and becoming, then I think we are, we're on to something as adult educators. And then we can pull the forces of training and inquiry and advocacy and, you know, uh, learning how to, learning how to, you know, know how, et cetera, around this larger aspiration, which is, you know, never going to be met. I do think that adult education is not a goal to be met. It's not a condition to be served. It's an inquiry to be lived. And I think that makes it distinct from perhaps other avocations in our field of which we have you know, ma- many you know, microspaces where we do this work. So for me, my definition was sort of you know, really holding this idea that, that adult education is the place where we use learning to evolve the context in which we think matters, whether that's political context, organizational context, communal context, family context, that is kind of the connection that I was making. And I, and I think that I, that connects to both of what you're saying in some way um, and, and allows for the ambiguity of things that, oh, you know, out of ambiguity comes something new, actually. We can create out of that as well. It's interesting to me that you know, the shorthand definition that I started with, the, the intentional facilitation of adult learning, uh, is a kind of operational definition. But then the three of us have also brought in a normative definition and said, well, it's not just that process of learning. There are different kinds of learning which have greater or lesser value according to the standards and ethics and morality that we hold. You know, training that's set up to um, exclude certain people from uh, a situation, training that's um, set up to convince workers that actually they can double their workload uh, and their mental health will not be impaired, training people to believe that a, a different group is inherently evil because of some random or haphazard marker of their race or their religion or or whatever it is, their gender, um, their identity. When when you stick with an operational definition, you avoid dealing with all those complexities, but it's the moral complexities and the moral purpose. Uh, I think that most people anyway that I know who call themselves adult educators would go straight to the fact that there are some purposes which have inherently greater value and meaning and, and should be um, pursued, and then there are others that we 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 need to um, to reject. Having the uh, ability to critically examine, um, reflect, um, which I know is one of your uh, favorite bits of conversation, um, Stephen, and to be able to to critically reflect on what it is that's that's being taught or that's being trained, um, and then being able to be self directed enough to 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 evaluate that content is is a piece that I think that gets ignored. Thinking back to what you said, Stephen, around uh, Miles Horton's definition of helping people learn what they do. And I think that's a sleight of hand because too much emphasis has been on how to do it. You know, helping people learn what they do is a much more difficult endeavor. It's a, it's a, it's a different and more difficult educative uh, approach that will take all the different kinds of roles that we take as educators in order to really interrogate and problematize, you know, wow, what am I learning what to do? <laughs> that is a very profound question. Um, and I, I think, Robin, your point around the critical reflection thing, and even that is like, oh, how do we critically reflect for what purpose, you know, to prove my point true? I encounter that often. Well, I am a critical uh, reflector. I Googled this thing. I found it was right. And I'm a critical reflector. I'm like, wow, do you think that's critical reflection is about proving yourself right? That's interesting. Well, ultimately, what what I'd like us to do is to get to the discussion about the relationship between adult education and HRD. And 
already from what the three of you are talking about here, it's clear that's going to be a fascinating conversation. But I'm thinking that perhaps a useful half step is to first consider the relationship between adult education and work. So I'm wondering how you view that relationship, right? The relationship between adult education, work, and even the workplace. If we think about that relationship, I think it's due in large part to the fact that we, I would say, instinctively learn throughout our lives. And at work, I would say we're always looking for ways to do things better or differently. And so there, I think there's a natural relationship. For me, adult education, as it relates to work and the workplace, is in our understanding of the word educating. So it assumes the idea of learning, then doing, that sees adult education as a way to train people in particular skills and knowledge that are necessary to do their jobs. And I think there is a role for adult education in work in this regard. You know, like pilots are trained how to deploy new landing gear, that, that's something I want them to learn how to do. Or healthcare workers, you know, needing to correctly sanitize equipment. Like these are necessary adult education opportunities um, that happen in the workplace. Um, it's beneficial since we know that there's evidence that, that training can do things like help older workers increase future employment or that um, on-the-job training for uh, women increases their employability. But employees can be well-educated to do their jobs, but not necessarily encouraged to learn. I think instead we need to look at the relationship between adult learning and the workplace and work. I've always cared less about what the organization wanted to educate their employees about. And instead, I want to focus on the learner, the employee, the worker, and, and their needs. So whether those are professional, personal, societal, some combination. So I think that that means considering instead the relationship between adult learning and the workplace and work. And, and I don't think I'm alone in this, or at least I hope not. It moves us away from the singular idea then of learning then doing, and instead it creates or allows for the possibility, I think, of doing then learning in the workplace. I think we have to acknowledge a couple of things. So one is that the organization is not the only source of knowledge and learning for the employee, and that the organization knows the limits of their own knowledge, um, their own expertise and values the knowledge um, and experience that their employees bring, um, bring to, the, to the learning environment. I think second, there is value in play and curiosity and exploration. And I think that in the workplace, we have to understand that those likely can't be manufactured. Um, I think a lot of companies have tried to put them in a box and sell them to, to uh, training and development departments with, with little success. But I think that you can encourage play and curiosity and exploration. You can embed it in the culture um, so that it is valued as a, as a tool for learning. Related to that is this issue of um, generosity of time. So workplaces need to give people space to um, engage in adult education, engage in learning. And then um, lastly, um, I think growth isn't always directly related to a specific outcome. So growth from learning. And I think that's important since growth mindset is, a, is, a, is, is very buzzy in a lot of organizations, um, developing a growth mindset. And yeah, it's essential for nurturing innovation and for risk-taking. But I think that when employees think that they're capacities or abilities or skills are fixed, then they're more likely to focus on, on more specific or short-term goals um, instead of long-term possibilities, you know, imagining um, what could be. Um, and, and I think that that's what uh, is generated through that idea of um, allowing people to engage in the kind of learning that they're interested in um, and that they think they need. When I was thinking and reflecting on, you know, what is this relationship between adult education and the concepts of work and workplace, I kept on imagining, you know, the game Thumb Wars, 
you know, who, who's on top. And I kept on thinking that the struggle of the field has been, oh, who's on top? Who's on top? Who's, who's got the bigger tent? Who's got the bigger tent? Who's got the bigger... And it, which to me was sort of like, what a useless, useless line of inquiry. So I, I felt uncomfortable with thinking about this relationship. But I think the way you kind of entered it, I think you sort of now qualified it for us to think about, well, there is a relationship between adults learning to do work and to participate in a workplace setting. And in that sense, the relationship is kind of a, a mutual reinforcing one, but on behalf of whom I think is the trickier question for me, because on behalf of the organization or the system sometimes, and, and maybe more than sometimes, leaves the, the learner behind. The question is, what are we learning for what? Because it goes back to this, for me, it goes back to Miles Horton's notion, like, well, are we helping people learn what they do? Because what they do means what's the purpose? What's the impact? Who's involved? Who's not involved? As opposed to how to do it, which I think is the, um, unfortunately, sort of the, the, the reduction of complexity that I think sometimes training does. I don't think learning and development do if, we're, if we can make some distinctions around that. But I do sometimes think that the over-instrumentalization of let me onboard you, bring you into the workplace, teach you how to do your work, and now you do it ad perpetuum is not an adult education ethos. I think that's a performance ethos that says learning is part of performance. And I think that's a different conversation or a conversation within this conversation. <laughs> I think the reason maybe why adult education and HRD sort of split and became bifurcated um, was because those who have a normative sense of what adult education should be doing, the purposes for which it should be striving, um, saw the term human resource development and thought, well, we're developing humans as a resource here, but we're developing them within the context of organizational priorities and the organizational mission. So we're developing the capacity of the humans uh, that we employ to execute our purposes properly. And so if our purposes are uh, basically bolstering a profit line, delivering uh, higher dividends to our shareholders, um, securing government contracts if we're a nonprofit reliant, reliance on, on grants, then uh, those of us who kind of come from a critical theory background in adult education uh, were very quick to say, well, HRD has nothing to do with us. People in HRD are corporate lackeys and sellouts. And so I've always felt that was way too simplistic. As Robin says, let's look instead at learning. Let's look at the learning that happens. And learning happens in every situation and every context. And sometimes the learning that happens at the workplace, you learn about yourself. You learn about the degree to which you can keep your own hope and momentum alive. You learn to deal with being disregarded. You learn what it means to face resistance from colleagues and yet still persist in trying to move them beyond um, where they are. Uh, you also learn to develop deep and significant relationships with people who are very different from you. I mean, for me, the workplace has been the site of some of my most meaningful relationships. Um, across, let's say, racial identity or gender identity. And had I not had access to being able to work with very different people on common tasks, I would have lost the ability or the opportunity to learn how to negotiate this balance and how to learn to live with ambiguity, to understand that someone who you work with sees the workplace in a 180 degree different way from the way that you do or to work with someone who has a very different political and ideological commitment to you, because that sooner or later comes out in jokes and references to media, and yet still retain some respect for them. So, so I like this emphasis on the learning that happens at the workplace. And I think when adult educators 
like me, kind of got on their moral high horse and said, well, HRD is full of compromised people who are brainwashed and all they're concerned about is serving uh, their corporate masters. You know, it was just a very, very blinkered and uncritical response. So from those of us who pride ourselves on being critically reflective, we were very quick to write off a whole sector as being you know, beyond the pale. So, so I appreciate your emphasis, Robin, on positioning learning and the kinds of learning that happen, uh, uh, some of which is directly sponsored by the organization, but a, you know, a significant amount of which comes from, um, from your analyzing your own experience. Yeah, I think Laura Bierma, she wrote about um, emotional learning, you know, and, you know, that, that possibility of, of leaders learning empathy. And, you know, I, I, I love that, that idea. But I think one of the things that, you know, when I think about it from a workplace perspective, and I think about all of the different um, examples that you've offered, Stephen, it can be frightening for the workplace. Right? You realize how, they realize how little control they have over what uh, people are learning. And then that, that's further confounded, I think, when they are faced with the idea of someone wanting to learn something that's beyond the scope of what they've been hired to do. And there's a fear that, you know, uh, putting time and energy and effort into an individual's um, learning goals may mean that the person turns around and, and leaves. Um, and so I'm always... Uh, really concerned when I hear, you know, about the sort of balance about like, well, we don't want to invest too much in their learning and development because then they'll just go and they'll find a new job. And so I think that that puts them, uh, that can put someone at odds in a position where they're responsible for development, human talent or, or, or otherwise. I was thinking that what, that's part of the relation, the change, this sort of this idea of so how has the relationship changed? And I think that the relationship has changed because there is, the, there is more, the boundaries between work and learning are no longer distinct. They're, they haven't been for a very long time. But I do think that the, the, the sort of that period of time that you were talking about earlier, Stephen, that, bif that false dichotomy, the bifurcation between adult education and HRD, which you know, just never ever resonated with me, has been, has been uh, challenged even more so because there is a kind, there's a lot too much overlapping boundaries around our work and our learning and our own growth and development and evolution and ability to participate in, you know, organizational life and societal life. And I think that is where um, it's both um, a lot of opportunity because we now have the critical lenses that are coming into the workplace. We can have difficult conversations. We do have standards around ethics and morality. We don't accept certain things uh, in the workplace. Um, and, and, and I think those are really important dimensions uh, of the relation between adult education and um, the workplace that have now come to be in more um, kind of mutual influence, if you will, right? How we learn, what we learn, how we interconnect, how we relate to one another, how do we create the cultures of learning? I mean, that's at the forefront of the workplace. That's what people talk about now. Um, so I, I think that there's, an, a, there's been a benefit where that relationship has become much more integrated and less dichotomized or bifurcated gives a whole new meaning to a uh, return on investment for uh, adult education in the workplace, doesn't it? We'll be back in a moment with more from Aliki, Robin and Stephen as we dig into the relationship between HRD and adult education. First, though, here's an important reminder that this episode is brought to you thanks to the wonderful sponsorship support of the Academy of Human Resource Development Board, which hosts its 30th annual international research conference in the Americas in Minneapolis, March 1st to 4th, 2023, attracting leading scholars and practitioners to report their cutting-edge research and theorizing. The program includes blind, peer-reviewed submissions that offer a diverse range of topics, perspectives, and research paradigms. 
Additionally, the conference includes other types of sessions that provide excellent opportunities to bring together conference participants for engagement in generative learning through both formal and informal interactions. AHRD is an inclusive organisation and invites all those who are interested in the field, no matter where they are on their scholarly journey. The manuscript submission deadline is September the 7th, 2022. For full details, visit ahrd.org. Right, let's return to our discussion for the second half of the episode. Okay, welcome back to our episode on HRD and adult education, where I'm joined by Stephen Brookfield, Robin Grenier, and Aliki Nikolaides. Before the break, we were talking about the connection between adult education and the workplace. So I'm thinking that now is probably the right time in the episode for us to focus the discussion in on HRD. So what do you see as the connection between adult education and HRD and like the relationship between those two in terms of research theory and practice? The relationship between adult education and HRD has been one that's been entangled in ways that I think at times are more confusing than necessary. And I also think at times, um, They've been treated as separate things um, and at times as similar things. We've treated adult education as the place where we prepare or give adults space and room to become themselves and to flourish in their communities and society. And similarly in HRD, I think we say the same thing, that HRD is the way in which we create spaces for human participation in organizational life that is supposed to be aimed at some kind of flourishing. The distinction between um, adult education for me is that we focus on self and society. And in human resource and development, we focus on self and organization. And society is a third. Not always, because there are lots of organizations that try to do triple bottom lines, and there's all that, you know, the responsibility culture that came in with Whole Foods and other organizations that profess that they want to give back to society in ways it doesn't, you know, cause harm. But I think that what's happened is it's almost like we've taken the liberty of overdoing both in some ways. So there's been a growth culture, I'm using the word growth, as an idea that everything has to get better and bigger and more in both adult education and HRD in a way that I think it's done a disservice. But I wonder about that. I wonder if in our pursuit of growth, right, making people better, more effective, more efficient, um, making society better, more just, more inclusive, that somehow we've kind of lost the plot and, and kind of collapsed what we really, what really are the aims and the intentions of uh, adult education. And in my view, there are other, other uh, forces that have sometimes seduced the direction of the field, both in theory and practice and are theorizing to be productive or to produce knowledge in service of multiple masters, the master of the organization, the master of the mission or vision sometimes within the organizational language, the master of the community and the people, the master of the society, uh, the master of bigger aspirational goals like social justice, inclusion, harmony, So I think we've served multiple masters, and I think that we lean towards one master or another instead of stepping back and sort of saying, really, you know, what is the intention and who do we serve? And I think we have left um, some people behind or some systems behind. And, And that worries me, because when I look at what's happening in the field of adult education, specifically in terms of theorizing, we are thin on theorizing. I think similarly in HRD, there's been performance and learning performance and talent management. And then we're plugging in issues of justice or inclusion or equitable ethics. But I'm not sure what we're really creating theories that really hold the complexity of the workplace. 
in some ways, I feel that we have an opportunity to move away from the bifurcation. Is it adult education, HRD? You know, I think what wasn't the metaphor that the that HRD is the big tent in which adult education lives, or adult education is the big tent in which HRD lives. And I think those tents, you know, we flip-flop between those tents depending on the mood and you know what era we're in. I think we're not too tense. I think we are in pursuit of similar values, which is to create the most opportunity or potential for human flourishing in systems, including society, community, organizations, the workplace, et cetera. I think the part that I've struggled with is how that idea or concept of organizations is defined and that it can be narrowly defined, which allows limited access to those that are that may lean a little more adult education oriented. Um, I know in my own work with with museums and cultural institutions, I've had to fight some of my HRD colleagues um, in publications or in conference proposals um, because they're they are looking at that as sure technically it's an organization, but is it is this really about HRD or is this adult learning or adult education, right? Um, and so having to make that stand to, to, to be able to argue that um, it certainly depends on how narrow your definition is of an organization. Are we only talking about um, for-profits or, or, you know, or governmental organizations, things like that? If we're keeping that definition tight and, and narrow, uh, I find it harder to float between the two as easily as I'd like to. You know, in the U.S., we live in a capitalistic and a militaristic culture. So you think about the amount of money that's spent of the GDP on defense spending. You think about the organizations that wield the greatest power globally, not just nationally, and their corporations. So I do think that the framing of how organization as a word is used is done within that capitalistic and militaristic um, paradigm. And so... Uh, cultural organizations, uh, grassroots, community organizations, on, uh, I don't think taken as real, you know, they're not real organizations because they're not following this corporate model. And, you know, I would include educational institutions in that. And I'm glad you raised the point, Aliki, about uh, acquiring the notion of flourishing, because whenever people uh, talk about we want people to flourish or to grow, we want to develop them. We want to, you know, help them fulfill their potential. Well, I'm, I'm always want to say, well, that's great, but that is an inherently normative thing, right? It's based on a notion of what a fully developed potential looks like or what growth looks like. And, you know, growth is not inherently good. Tumors grow uh, and we don't want that to happen. And you can grow in your racism and your bigotry and become more and more convinced and committed to a particular sectional viewpoint. So when we talk about flourishing and, poten and potential and growth, it kind of gets us off the hook a little bit. It's language like we want to be inclusive, that everyone will agree on. We want to celebrate our diversity, everyone will agree on. But then when you start talking about very specific directions of growth, like moving to more collective financial models. John Holst and I wrote a book a few years ago called Radicalizing Learning, where we looked, we had a whole chapter on adult development, where we looked at this idea of growth and development and, and were arguing that it is always in a particular direction. It's never an amorphous value-free thing. And, and then the last thing I just wanted to say on the question from my point of view, uh, you know, the question is, well, does research theory and practice in one influence research theory and practice in the other? And I think, no, I don't think they do. Uh, the very peripherally, maybe, but I see us as two separate communities and the three of us hopefully cross between them and there are others who cross between. But just my own experience is that they are in separate bunkers really. 
I feel a little bit of comfort hearing that Stephen be so clear about that we are two distinct fields and disciplines. In one way, I mean, that feels like a liberation because we don't have to then be compared or like it would be much better, I think, if we just acknowledge that we are two distinct spaces in which we borrow from one another and we collaborate. That would be a far more liberating um, framing. I think like um, Watkins and, and Marsic are, are um, an example of, of two scholars that, that have straddled that quite well. Um, I, I see them equally represented in, in both bodies of scholarship. And, and I think that they're a positive example of where I can see roots of both fields in their work. As I listen to the conversation, I'm listening to it, I think, through a lens of what this means for a, somebody who's doing HRD practice. So somebody's in the, in an organization right now and is doing that. And, and I think about some of the words they might use to describe their roles. They might describe their role, say, as being a performance improver, or they might describe their role as being a change agent or, or a capability developer. Um, it makes me wonder what would happen if they saw themselves as an adult educator. Uh, and so I, I don't know how many do. So to what extent do you think HRD professionals would consider themselves an adult educator? And if they did, would that potentially change their approach to HRD? If I think about the students that are entering my program, most of them are practitioners and I think they do consider themselves adult educators. That's why they come to the program to begin with and not go to say the business school or something um, like that. They're coming to us because they recognize that they are adult educators. And I think that they um, often want to function that way. They want to help people. They want to help people learn and grow and develop, not just in their organization or in their jobs, but in, in life in, in, and um but I think that they're often at odds with an organization that doesn't see their role as that, um, as, as expansive as that. Um, and, and so they're, they're often struggling to make change from within. Like, I'm going to get this degree in adult education um, so that I can go back into my organization and, and change things from the inside and, and make learning a priority or make it you know, an important piece to the, to the success of the organization. Yeah, I would say the HRD folks I've worked with um, do see themselves as educators. They don't tag the word adult necessarily to it, but they'll say, yeah, we, we, we want, as, as Aliki was saying, to help people grow and develop and flourish. Uh, we'd like to foster an organization that, that hears its employees uh, a little bit more seriously, takes their viewpoints, actively solicits their viewpoints more seriously. We'd like to have meetings. We'd like to help people learn how to run meetings that are more democratic and collaborative and that are not just reports in progress that could have been sent around in an email. Um, so I think they do definitely see themselves as educators. Um, but, but if I mention adult education that's usually uh in, in my little part of the world being met with a a quizzical look you know they they that is not how they would identify themselves and i do think you're right robin i mean everyone is trying to be a change agent working for the side of greater compassion treating people more humanely trying in some way to democratize their little corner of the organization so people are taken seriously and but of course the uh, i think the organizational framing the capitalistic framing of human resource development is why are we developing this resource well to uh give greater dividends to our stockholders basically to increase our profits uh, and even in a university hrd at least in a private university and probably in a state public one as well it's oriented towards well how can we um, make the organization work more smoothly so we can have a good reputation uh, in the community, be perceived as a good place for people to spend money and send uh, their kids to us. So it's all framed within that particular paradigm. But then the practitioners are working often 
from a more humanistic paradigm, because that's why they've ended up where they are rather than in the development office or uh, in grounds or, or whatever part of the organization they, they could have joined. It makes me think of there was a, uh, an organization recently and, and one of their um, that I was uh, that I had heard of, one of their objectives was a growth mindset. And I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. That's great. Um, and and uh, my colleague said, well, it was great until they realized that that meant that people could fail. Um, and still meet the objective, right? And so they, so the the educator was at odds. They got growth mindset incorporated into the organizational objectives, um, but management uh, took one look at that when they found out what it really meant. It didn't meant it didn't mean continual growth and continual improvement. Um, it, it 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 could mean that, but certainly allowed space for for trial and error and even failure and and still meet an objective. And that was a little hard for for um, them to balance those. So I think that, that that's an example that I that I think of when we're trying to do the education part um, within within certain uh, capitalistic organizations. I think it's interesting that a lot of our students, or at least I can resonate with the students saying, oh yeah, I'm a facilitator or a change agent or, but I'm not an adult educator, right? Or I'm an educator without the adult part of it. And I think that's, that, is, that is more common, that adult education has become something like you know, English language acquisition or vocational training or, or something like that. And I wonder just you know, like, oh, you know, how come that idea of adult educator has you know, morphized itself into this thing that people say, oh, no, no, I'm not that, I'm this. You know, so that's, that's an interesting moment for us to think about. For me, this is the moment for us to be able to say, well, what does an agent of change, a facilitator of change, a transformational agent, an educator bring to any space? What are we preparing our students even for? If, if we can't prepare them to also ask the critical questions that might disturb, so growth mindset ended up being a disturbance for this organization, right? Bob Hill used to be a faculty here. He says, you know, what is the role of an adult educator? A role of an adult educator is to disturb, to disturb any system. That's what he used to say. And if we can't disturb, then what is our role? Yeah, it makes me think about the focus on growth within organizations and that and therefore what organizations tend to reward and recognize. So they're rewarding, recognizing, encouraging growth essentially action and and i contrast that a little with stephen what you said earlier in the conversation which is about the important role that reflection has within adult learning and adult education so so i'm wondering when you think about that do you see reflection happening within hrd sufficiently or do you think there's a space for reflection to be introduced more into hrd's work within organizations you know, I think in all the organizations I've worked or, or I've consulted with, um, I've heard so many times that, that the comment that if you ask a big question, you're seen as taking us off track in a meeting. This kind of big picture, utopian, speculative, reflective thinking is seen as adolescent, uh, something that you'll grow out of, right, as you get older and more mature as an adult. And it's a very good ideological contract that this this culture plays i think so i think you know the lack of time that's seriously devoted to considering big picture questions or asking ourselves what is our fundamental purpose here what what do we really want to be about that i hear that mentioned constantly as the biggest problem um, in in organizational development in hrd uh, in particular. But I do think that there are things that you can do, even within this performance paradigm. So the first thing that I'm always thinking about is, well, if I want to get people to engage in reflection, I probably shouldn't use that word, because that word is like death. Reflection, what the hell does that have to do with productivity or the growth that we want? So instead, I will frame it as we want to introduce more effective models of decision-making. We want to make better decisions. 
that will have the effects that we want them to have. And people will sign on to that. Oh yeah, uh, organizational life is about making decisions. So HRD will train people to make better decisions. But then that training through case studies and scenarios and so on, and then actual experience drills down into the rationales behind the decisions that have been made or the decisions that are being covered. And you're really then doing a reflective work on the basic assumptions that are framing your, your, your day-to-day choices. And, and, and then, you know, I think a big part of this is, you know, we all want to solve the problems, right? So that's what good HRD trains people to do to address problems that the organization has. But part of the training for that, so you can have training around problem solving, but make sure that you include within it um, the, the kind of problem posing element. So why is this problem out of all the ones potentially that we have here, chosen as the one that we are going to focus on. In whose interest is it being solved? Who benefits from the solution of this problem? And and most of them ultimately uh, in in corporate America are the stockholders. That's who's going to benefit because they'll get greater dividends. I think also I love to use immediate um, anonymous social media in training. That's been a big, big, tool for me in recent years. So if I'm meeting with a group of employees, I can pose a question over a tool like Slido, SLI.do, which I use a lot. Within 90 seconds, you can have hundreds of responses if you're doing a big town hall meeting type training with an organization. And those responses, because of their anonymity, will be honest and truthful and can reframe completely the way that a training session goes. And then the the final thing I think is if if you very self-consciously change the performance appraisal criteria or the, the reward system, whatever it is, to prioritize the sorts of things that are involved in reflection. So for example, if listening became a quality that you would want to look for in hiring. And it was named, the ability to listen carefully, if that was named as a fundamental criterion for hiring, uh, or the ability to pose, in Bob Hill's terms, disturbing questions or difficult questions. You, You hire people for that ability. And then in your annual performance appraisal, one of the things that you talk about with your supervisor is how have I worked on my listening? How have I deliberately tried to unearth the concerns of those that I'm serving or working alongside in the organization? Um, How, what what are the most productively disturbing questions that I've asked myself or a colleague this year? You have performance appraisal and and, and reward um, systems focusing on those very intentionally. I, I think that also goes a long way to to making uh, organizations more reflective. I, I think with, I mean, I think Stephen, you you know, we, it's funny as adult educators, we know the tools. What's interesting is for me, and, and this goes to sort of like, how do we prepare those, you know, the trainer, you keep using the word training. So I'll go with training for now. The training programs, et cetera, that really help to build the mechanisms and the tools for people to actually have these kinds of conversations. And I think that that when we talk about, you know, how do we create those cultures um, uh, organizationally, that is a really difficult question because I think, you know, it's almost like we know what we need to do. But how do we grow? What do we? What are the mechanisms that that allow the things that you've just said to happen? And I always find that that like working with my students who go into specifically HR roles, that's the biggest rub, right? Is is figuring that part out because I do think that we are we people come to our programs just to use our higher educational context to learn to become better problem solvers, right? To create better opportunities for whatever growth is defined in whatever context and setting. But that trajectory to me sometimes doesn't leave enough space for 
um, weirder kinds of interactions, like going slow to go fast within a system so that the system can learn itself or even listen to itself. Like even that is a disruption uh, uh, that I think, you know, is hard to, it's hard to, to create the mechanisms for. When I'm thinking about that, that opportunity for understanding how you make decisions, things like that, it's, it's allowing space for that. And I think that one of the things that adult educators, at least in my experience, have been great at is, is advocating for that space to think, um, that space to experience um, and to experiment. Um, and so we need organizations that, that, that allow for that and value it, whether it's through sabbaticals or through some of that, what is it like 80-20 kind of time splits where it allows people to, to, to work on their own projects or, or, or their own ideas um, and, and gives them time to reflect on ones that they're working on um, as part of the organization. Um, and I know that that time is a, is a valuable commodity for a lot of organizations, but, but I think that, that advocating for that and the value of that space um, to, to think and to reflect um, and to make decisions that have long lasting and, and successful, more, more likely to be successful outcomes um, is, is really critical. Throughout the episode, you've referenced adult learning and its role within adult education. And, and I'm wondering to what extent do you find our understanding of adult learning actually influences HRD practices in the workplace and potentially could more be done to align HRD practices with our understanding of adult learning theory and research? Steve introduced the idea of problem solving earlier and problem solving very connected to the HRD profession. And I think that that is uh, the distinction between adult learning and problem solving could really be amplified. Uh, and what I mean by that is often we um, kind of collapse problem solving and learning together. And I think there are two distinct things. I would say that problem solving is certainly uh, a way in which we could, we could apply learning too. But problem solving is not learning. And learning isn't only problem solving. And, and I think we would benefit by really, um, uh, you know, kind of digging into that a little bit. Because learning how to respond is different than solving a problem. Uh, I think with learning, you know, um, you use the language of learning. And I've, I find HRD uh, folks are very, very comfortable with that because they want to help people um, learn to grow and develop both in their jobs, but also as individuals and contributes to the organization. And when I do HRD work, I do everything that I do as an adult educator. I don't use often the adult educational descriptors to describe it, but you know, everyone wants to know, well, how do we foster more uh, trustful teamwork, genuine collaboration? How do we get people with different preferences and learning styles and from different uh, racial and cultural backgrounds to work together more um, productively. Well, you know, that's looking at the nature of, of collaborative and collective works. So conversations around learning are much less fraught uh, in terms of, of people's understanding of what I'm talking about than conversations around adult education are. And I've pretty much given up using the term adult education in an HRD setting, um, I'll just talk about education or learning or training. And, and you, you stick to those terms, you can do adult educational things and transfer them directly across in, in many cases. Yeah, I, I think to, to, to add to that, Stephen, that adult learning is happening within HRD and within organizations, whether you want it to or not. Um, and so I think there is, you know, there is certainly a link between those two. Um, for me, I, I think the, the effectiveness of the adult learning or the value of the adult learning uh, comes down to the issues of, of power and control. How much power and control does the organization wish to yield, uh, yield or use um, to, to manage that learning, to control that learning? Um, and so I think that that we have to think about as practitioners have to think about, you know, how is learning fostered in their organizations? Um, and, and is 
is all learning of value within the organization or, or is only certain kinds of learning, right? Um, and, then, and then to make it really effective, even though it's happening, I think to make it effective, the organizations and people that are working in them need to learn to, to value and, um, and apply the learning. We've got lots of learning going on, but it's not always valued um, for its um, potential application within an organization, right? Because that, that means giving up control, changing how people do things, um, how an organization operates. So I think that, that ideally you need a place that values learning, but then also is willing to incorporate that learning into their, into their org- organization and its practices. Yeah, that feels like a wonderful call to action to wrap up the episode. And unfortunately, we've run out of time for the conversation, but I've really enjoyed our time together. So thank you so much to all three of you for being a part of the episode and for exploring HRD and adult education. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, folks. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Stephen Brookfield, Robin Grenier and Aliki Nicolaides. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There were 22 episodes in the first two seasons and we're releasing a further 11 here in the third. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 75 leading HRD scholars from around the world. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials. Also, don't forget to look into our sponsors. The HRD Programme at the University of Minnesota. Visit their website at cehd. Dot umn dot edu slash olpd and the Academy of Human Resource Development Board, which invites you to submit manuscripts to its 30th International Research Conference in the Americas. The submission deadline is September the 7th, 2022. For full details, visit ahrd.org. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode when we're exploring the relationship between HRD and data analytics with the help of Claire Gubbins of Dublin City University in Ireland, Chad Chungil-Chai of Keene University, Wenzhou, China, and Peter Gray of the University of Virginia in the United States. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the Human Resource Development Masterclass. Human Resource Development Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and it's a production of allbypodcast.com.